Cleveland Schmooze is sponsored by the Cleveland Jewish News. Get the latest news and information from the Cleveland Jewish News delivered right to your inbox. Choose from breaking news, daily headlines, community life cycle notices, arts, events, highlights, and more with our free e-newsletters. Sign up now at cjn.org slash e-signup. Welcome to Cleveland Schmooze, a bi-weekly podcast about the people who make up Jewish Cleveland. We're your hosts. I'm Rachel Rude. And I'm Robin Rude. And we're back for season four. That's right. This week, we are talking to Rabbi Josh Foster of B'nai Shurin Congregation. He oversees the congregation's Youth and Learning Center and Bessie Hershey Religious School. He tells us about how he became a rabbi and how the pandemic has impacted religious education and the High Holy Days. We recorded this conversation with the rabbi over Zoom. And just a note that with the craziness of the election and my day job working for a local news outlet, we'll be recording these episodes on a monthly basis for the time being. We hope to resume bi-weekly episodes in 2021. Thanks and enjoy. So Rabbi Josh Foster, thank you so much for being on Cleveland Schmooze. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. I'm so glad to be with you here on Cleveland Schmooze. And Happy New Year. Um, happy New Year to you. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. <laughs> so um, life as we know it is turned upside down um, from this time last year to now. So one of the um, biggest ways that's, that's impacted what you do at the synagogue is through the education program. Um, can you talk a little bit about how things have changed for you and your role at the synagogue since the pandemic started? Um, yes. So I'll share, you know, it was mid-March this past year that really everything got turned upside down and, and we made the decision, uh, really was, was made for us in many ways, uh, that, that we were going uh, to not be able to meet in person in the building. And we use, it was right around spring break uh, in the public schools in, in mid-March. And we used that week uh, to get our teachers as comfortable as possible with, uh, with running classes over Zoom in a virtual setting and practicing to get ready to have a virtual youth service uh, on Shabbat mornings. Um, and what we ultimately decided to do in place of having a weekday afternoon class on Zoom is actually pair every one of our students up one-on-one with one of our teachers uh, so that we could work one-on-one over, over Zoom or FaceTime, but to allow more of a one-on-one experience because running a, a full class over Zoom uh, made it much more challenging for students to get the individual attention that would help them be as successful as they could be and, and learn as much as possible in terms of Hebrew language acquisition. Uh, and, and overall, you know, it was a big change. It, it was, in my eyes, you know, I think as successful as it could have been. Of course, we miss being in person and there are a lot of challenges that, uh, that were associated and there was a lot of learning that, that we all did and our teachers and families did. We're very appreciative that our families were very supportive. Everyone understood the situation we were in. And some of our teachers had more background in terms of just computer savvy and, and working online than others. Uh, but we worked together uh, to make it work as best as possible. Um, and over the course of the summer, uh, we did a lot of surveys of families speaking with teachers to determine because we didn't know what the situation would necessarily look like in the fall. Um, but ultimately, it became clear that, that 
our program would primarily need to be virtual. Uh, we are continuing to run the one-on-one sessions during the week, uh, which proved to be very popular. Um, and in those sessions, we gave families an option whether they wanted to meet one-on-one over Zoom or one-on-one distanced in person. Uh, And many families are meeting over Zoom, but there are some families meeting one-on-one in person at the synagogue. And we've set up outside canopy tents and tables across from one another spaced about eight, 10 feet apart. Uh, And that has worked well so far. Uh, We're kind of formulating plans as the weather starts to get cooler, whether families and teachers would be comfortable being inside in a, in a classroom setting, but spaced out wearing masks, um, as opposed to outside wearing masks. And the synagogue has approved that, that as a plan for those families that are interested and tutor, and we have teachers that are comfortable, some teachers that are comfortable doing that, only in a one-on-one setting, uh, not, no more than one teacher and one student. So um, I want to go back and go all the way back to your childhood, um, because I want to know, you know, how did you become a rabbi? How did you, you know, why even the focus in education, like how did that kind of come about for you? What was, what was the spark? Um, So I would say, you know, if I needed to go back the farthest, I think the first, uh, real connection I had that kind of gave me the spark was, was actually Jewish summer camp. Um, and I grew up going to Camp Ramah in Canada, where I know there are a number of, 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 na, of both current children, but also many young adults and adults at, at B'nai Asherin that grew up at the same camp. In fact, I got to know and become friends with a number of B'nai Asherin members or, or people who grew up at B'nai Asherin from my time at Camp Ramah. Um, and I would say really, the, as um, a camper in the oldest age group, the oldest unit, uh, you're given an opportunity to be a counselor in training. Um, and that experience, to be honest, when I was, was going into that, uh, that oldest age group, that oldest Eidat, at 16 years old, I really hadn't given thought to being a counselor or, or working with children in, any, in that kind of a capacity, but really came to uh, build very strong relationship with my campers, uh, were 11-year-old students that were, that were 11-year-old campers, uh, and really found myself connecting, working with, with kids in a Jewish setting, uh, building relationships, helping, helping campers grow Jewishly in particular, and started to think about what that might look like as a career, what that might look like as, as something moving forward. And passion for Jewish life, born of my time at, at summer camp, and also with a strong relationship and um, with my home congregation outside Detroit, decided that continuing my Jewish studies was something that was very important to me and led me uh, to apply to and ultimately to be accepted and to go to List College, which was a joint program of the Jewish Theological Seminary and, and Columbia University as an undergraduate. And it was there, and, and my continuing work uh, wa- during my time there as a counselor at summer camp, uh, that it was something that I just found I really loved and, and looked for opportunities while I was in college to find connections, uh, working with younger students and helping Jewish connections. And, and I found myself looking for jobs as re- a religious school teacher at a variety of different synagogues over those years um, in the New York area, New Jersey. Um, as well as working as a youth group advisor for a couple of years uh, with different youth groups in the area, and really made that decision through those experiences that, that I, what I wanted to do was find a way to work with Jewish youth. I also had the opportunity to see up close at the Jewish Theological Seminary uh, the rabbinical school um, and, 
and the process. And through my time there, it actually wasn't until after I graduated that I made the determination to apply to the rabbinical school, um, but made the determination after seeing what that process was, that that would be a great venue and a great, a great way to both continue my Jewish studies and ultimately, even from the beginning when I, when I began studying in the rabbinical school and beforehand, I knew that when I was going, it was because I was interested in, in a role working with Jewish youth. While it's, it's a wonderful role, being a pulpit rabbi was not a role that I saw for myself. It really wasn't what brought me to rabbinical school in the first place. And I'm blessed uh, to be here with, with a wonderful community at Bnei Asherin and in Cleveland uh, to have that great opportunity and to work with, with, uh, with so many tremendous, uh, great families who are looking uh, to instill Jewish values uh, and Jewish upbringing for their children. Can you talk about what growing up Jewish was like for you? Were you raised conservative? Were you, you know, was, were you... Can we backtrack? How old are you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 36. Okay, 36. you're young. <laughs> I'm young. It's all relative. Just for our <laughs> listeners, you can talk about your past, but what decade are you talking about? <laughs> I, I'll, I'll share the decade. But as, I, as you quickly learn, right, in synagogue life, where many of the members at B'nai Asherin and in many congregations are much older. I'm, I'm among one of the youngest members of the congregation, but at the same time working with kids and youth, uh, it's all relative because I'm, I'm ancient when you're looking, you're talking to 10 and 11 year olds, you know, at 12 year But so it's all, it's all relative. When you subscribe to the Cleveland Jewish News, you receive 52 issues of the award-winning CJN and 15 total magazines including J-Style, Canvas, and Balanced Family. Try the Cleveland Jewish News for free. Start your six-week free trial at cjn.org slash six free. So I, I grew up going to a Jewish day school, actually, uh, Hillel Day School in Detroit, uh, which at the time was, was part of the Solomon Schechter School Movement, a conservative Jewish school. It has since actually left the Solomon Schechter Movement and, and is now a community day school for whatever, whatever that might mean. But no, I, I enjoy, you know, I, I grew up with, with Judaism being an important part of my life and, and Jewish community being an important part of, of my family's life. My father started at our congregation a second-day Shavuot picnic lunch for the community. Um, and we, always was, we were always looking for ways to connect with community around, uh, around the holidays um, and around Jewish life. And it was very, very much something I was brought up into. Uh, we had Shabbat dinner um, every Friday night. And at a pretty young age, I learned uh, to read from the Torah, to chant from the Torah, probably fourth and fifth or fifth grade. And it became something that I, I had a knack for and a, and a talent for. And so following uh, my bar mitzvah was something that I went fairly regularly uh, to our synagogue uh, to read, to chant from the Torah or half Torah or eventually lead services. I, I went to a synagogue after my bar mitzvah that didn't have a chazan, didn't have a cantor actually. And so all of the prayers were leyled, which, which offered an opportunity for me in some ways uh, to, or maybe maybe an opportunity for the congregation to, to call on me <laughs> uh, to lead services <laughs> um, when they were in need. curious so did you have any rabbis in your family or there were no rabbis in my family to the best of my knowledge uh and and my parents and grandparents um 
Do you know the where they came from? So no one on any side of my family was ever a rabbi. To the best of my knowledge, I'm the first on either side of my family. Uh, my mother's father, Zichron Olivracha, passed away. I uh, actually lived a, a long life, died, passed away at the age of 94. Uh, but he was from Poland, modern-day Belarus. And as a fascinating story, which could share at a different, uh, <laughs> a different, <laughs> a different time, if you want. But he, uh, I can share briefly, uh, grew up, and he was already in his early 30s when, when World War II broke out and the Holocaust began. Um, and he realized that things didn't look good and, and fled just, just weeks uh, before the Nazis invaded his, uh, his hometown, uh, first to Lithuania, where he was a refugee. Um, and after about a year, when refugees were forced out, uh, really forced back to Europe, he managed to flee to, to Moscow and get on a railroad, a three-week rail journey, uh, to Japan. Uh, he had secured in Lithuania uh, the reason he was able to get into Japan. He was able to secure a visa from the, from the Japanese consul general, Chiyuni Sugihara, uh, who's known as one of the righteous among the nations, uh, for illegally and basically against orders, uh, issuing thousands of visas uh, to Jews, Jewish refugees, um, because he knew the situation. Uh, there and actually illegally printed visas, real visas, but illegally printed 20,000 visas, of which my grandfather was one of, um, and managed to get to, sh to Japan. And then all Jews and all refugees were sent to Shanghai, to the ghetto, uh, where he was in the ghetto for five and a half years, actually the same place where, where B'nai Shuren member uh, Harry Abraham and family was. I, I don't know if they knew each other, or <laughs> the families knew each other, but they lived in the same small quarters. So there's a movie, and my grandfather was part of that that community, um, and eventually made his way after the war to Detroit, um, where I was born, uh, and, and actually after, was always a lifelong Zionist, and actually after his children graduated from high school, ended up with his wife making Aliyah, uh, going to Israel. Eventually, they, they ended up coming back for various reasons to the United States, and both of their children were there, but, uh, but really brought with him that, that uh, love of of Judaism and Jewish community that, that was instilled in, in, in my mother and then me. Uh, so he was from Poland and his wife was born in the United States, but, but, his, but her family had come from Russia only a couple of years before she was born. So she was, while born in Detroit, she was really from an immigrant family. Um, and my father's parents actually both were born in Detroit and even their parents were, were born in, not in, sorry, not in Detroit, in the United States in New Jersey. Uh, and their parents also, even from the United States, there was a, actually a pretty long history in the United States, but originally uh, family uh, was from Hungary and the Czech Republic and Ukraine, Galicia. Wow. Uh, so all, all Eastern European in origin. Right. What a great story. Can't wait I for you to share. Yeah, the movie. It's a What's documentary. The movie? So, I forget the so name. That was, the story, that was his story in brief, but really a, a, fa a tremendous story and, and of survival. And unfortunately, some family members... Uh, who stayed in Poland were not as fortunate um, and, and were killed, uh, but, but did have some siblings who had moved to South America, actually, as part of one of the initial Jewish settlements in South America in the early 1930s before the war, and still to this day have many relatives uh, who live in Buen now all in Buenos Aires. Uh, and he even after, before coming to Detroit, I, I skipped, but he had relatives and actually moved to Paraguay uh, for a year where his siblings were before eventually making his way to Detroit where he had other, other relatives. They're fascinating. Everybody's got a fascinating story. You're very lucky. No, there are, and, and, and there are many stories. And, and while tremendously tragic uh, 
times, uh, there are many tremendous stories of heroism and, 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 uh, and story, fascinating stories of how people ended up where they did. Well, I want to ask about, while we're on the subject of the Holocaust, because I don't know if you've seen recent articles and reports about, you know, how many of today's American youth, like, even know how many Jews died in World War II, or even that the Holocaust happened. And being someone who's in the world of education, Jewish education specifically, where are you finding that young people are today in terms of their knowledge of the Holocaust? And do you find that, you know, we kind of have this obligation to not just educate Jewish people, but also people outside of our faith? Yeah, no, I do think that it's important um, to educate everyone. I mean, I think it's important to educate all youth, all students, not only Jewish students. I think Jewish students, of course, we want to educate, and, and that's part of our curriculum, actually, in seventh grade, uh, to make sure that our students are very familiar with what happened. Um, not only to know about the history, but also to learn lessons to what we can look for in our world to make sure that nothing like this uh, ever, ever comes to pass again. Uh, but it's also been my pleasure uh, to be able to work with the face-to-face -face program uh, out of the Kol Israel Foundation now and was at Congregation Shari Tikva uh, to, to speak with students to learn about Jewish life and learn about the Holocaust. Um, and I know that they bring in thousands of students uh, from many school districts where there are very few, if any, uh, Jewish students, um, so that students uh, from, from a wide vari a variety of backgrounds and from all backgrounds uh, can learn about the Holocaust and, and learn the lessons that, that we take to make sure that nothing like this happens again. Um, I'm comforted to hear in some districts that there are classes that focus on the Holocaust, but I also know that there are many places uh, where the, the education regarding the Holocaust is woefully inadequate in, in public school systems and in systems around the country. And so I think while there are many districts that are doing very well, there are many, many districts that that have a lot, uh, a long ways to go. Getting back to the education that's happening now. So you were saying, you know, right now we're doing this semi-virtual, mostly virtual education um, because of the pandemic. Do you have any idea what's going on with uh, Jewish learning in other parts of uh, the state or, or the country? Yeah, the truth is that most places have moved to be primarily virtual. Most congregations all over the country Smaller congregations in some places have found ways uh, to meet in person in, in safer ways, especially if the number of students are smaller, and particularly in areas uh, where the virus um, is, has not been as prevalent, where there are many fewer cases. Uh, and, but in speaking with, with friends and colleagues across the country, the large majority um, are are running virtual programs or primarily virtual programs. That's true in Cleveland as well. Most programs are running primarily virtual. There are a couple programs uh, which are running hybrid models where there's both virtual programs as well as some optional in-person programs. But both in Cleveland and across the country, the, the, the large majority um, are running primarily virtual programs right now. And we know that the ways in which we are celebrating our High Holy Days this year are unprecedented, um, having to do, you know, everything virtually. Um, actually, later today, we're going to get to go to the temple and go into the Ark. Um, you've got you no, have to reserve a time 
to go. We only uh, get 15 minutes. <laughs> um, so it takes me 15 minutes to walk down the yeah. aisle. Can you just kind of... If you need longer, let them know. But, but <laughs> I may just, have to do twice. <laughs> can you just kind of reflect on this time, um, you know, and, and just especially this is our first high holidays that we're spending in this uh, unfortunate pandemic? Yeah, no, it, it, without question, it's very challenging. Um, and and one of one of the highlights for me and for, for I know so many people um, is to be there in the sanctuary, to be among the congregation, to be with friends. Uh, you know, I, there's there's a common refrain, a joke, right, in the Jewish community that that Mr. Goldberg uh, goes to, to synagogue, goes to, to shul to talk to God, and Mr. Cohen goes to synagogue to talk to Mr. Goldberg. <laughs> <laughs> know that that we're definitely missing that communal aspect. Um, I I do feel very proud of what B'nai Ashurin accomplished with our services. If you tuned in, I felt that they were very well done, uh, despite some technical challenges with people, you know, with the shofar blasts and other people coming in, there was some technical difficulty on occasion. But overall, I think, you know, it, it was very well done. And we actually saw the numbers that that on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, some 850 computer screens or screens of people streamed in, which is, which is a lot of people. Frankly, it may have been just as many as we normally get if you figure that there's two to three, four people on a, on a given screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually just saw those, the data and figures coming in. I like um, it. So it's my, you know, it's, it's my hope that, that everyone can find a way, and this is something that I encourage everyone, to find a way to make this meaningful for you. And perhaps, you know... Maybe because it's different, of course, we want things to look back and, and God willing, Be'ezrat Hashem, they will next next year for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But hopefully um, we can all take this opportunity to find new experiences, maybe find our own place of solitude for prayer and meditation outside or, um, or a place in our home that we can make sacred and holy uh, in a way that we haven't before. Um, and, and, and find new ways uh, to connect uh, this high holiday season. Um, so certainly, you know, we, we wish for and we hope for, for a time, God willing, soon that we'll be able to come back in person. But my hope is that we can also find new ways uh, to connect. And maybe it's something that we can take with us even when we are able to all join together um, in the sanctuary. Maybe there's something that we can take from this time to connect even more deeply in the future. We had a impromptu Tashlich at Shaker Lakes. So we took, you know, the girls and Mark and I and, and Elijah, and we uh, walked to Shaker Lakes. And on the other side of the bridge, there was some other group of people, and the guy had a shofar and a clarinet. And he was playing some Jewish music before he blew the shofar. We didn't know them. They didn't know us. Everybody yeah. was masked. We were like, I don't know, 20 feet away from each other. But it was just a lovely, impromptu sort of a celebration. It would have never happened, perhaps. if. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. I think, you know, you see these opportunities for people come together that may never have come together, especially in a, in a, in a Jewish experience uh, like that. And I think, like you're ex- uh, describing, which is wonderful uh, experience to have a to have a, an impromptu tashlich experience. I do think uh, that this um, this experience has allowed families and many people uh, to take on ownership 
of Jewish ritual and experience in a way that, that many have never done before, in a way that many might have relied on the synagogue or their Jewish, their Jewish community to do for them. Uh, and while we're doing everything we can, um, I think there's a beautiful opportunity for people. And we've, I've helped, and I know the other clergy have helped, have helped many of our congregants in crafting their own individual experiences for whether it's Tashlich or, or other, uh, other experiences for the holidays or, or even for Passover and Shavuot and holidays that already were during the pandemic and find ways to, to bring the experience home uh, to the individual. Well, Rabbi, I really want to thank you for joining us today on Cleveland Schmooze. Yeah, no, thank you. It's, it's really a pleasure to be with you. Um, and I want to wish you a, a Shana Tova and a Gmar Chatima Tova uh, for a meaningful Yom Kippur. Um, and I hope to, uh, we'll see you soon and possibly join you again at some point. <laughs> We're happy to do it. Thank you so much. Great. Stay well. Thanks for listening to Cleveland Schmooze, a podcast produced by Rachel and Robin Rood. Tune in every other Friday to get the latest episode in your podcast feed. You can also find an archive of our episodes at our website, clevelandschmooze.com. And feel free to share any comments or suggestions to our email, clevelandschmooze at gmail.com. That's schmooze spelled C-A-S-C-H. <laughs> That's schmooze spelled schmooze. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.